I just remember sitting one day outside this big building looking at all the kids that I went to school with in Nebraska play in the playground at school, but I'm sitting on the other side of the fence. That's Khalil Irving, a multimedia artist who currently lives and works in St. Louis. And like many of us, he's influenced by his past, even as he contemplates a very bright future. I'm Nancy Fowler, and this is Cut and Paste, St. Louis Public Radio's arts and culture podcast. Irving is currently exhibiting his work from Los Angeles to New York City. He has more exhibitions opening up this year in cities including Middleton, Connecticut, and Kansas City, Missouri. He's only 25, fresh out of his Washington University MFA program, where he was a chancellor's graduate fellow. But he's had a lot of life experiences, including some hard knocks as a kid, but also extensive international travel to places including Hungary, Thailand, and the city of Jerusalem. Although Irving's exhibited his art since 2010, things have really taken off in the past year or so. His recent work involves making objects that challenge constructs of identity and culture in Western civilization. A recent collection called The Undocumented Series explores those ideas with hundreds of black vessels, similar to vases that Irving made out of clay. We began our conversation talking about one particular configuration of that series, which is now on display at the Craft and Folk Art Museum in Los Angeles. The most recent iteration of the Undocumented series is called Protest, colon, 1883, uh, United States versus Harris. Tell me about that. It's a reconfiguration of all the black vessels atop a platform that is five feet tall, 14 feet long and five feet wide, and it looks like a Roman numeral one um, or an I. And for me, I use the f- that form as a way for a viewer to get close to the structure and kind of have vessels on both sides of them, but then they can also go around it. And when you walk up the stairs of the museum, you're confronted by five feet wide um, mass, which was interesting. So you can't, you will see it. You cannot ignore it. No, it you is can't there. ignore it, yeah. And so let me just make sure I understand. So these vessels that you created and painted, the various series use them in different ways? Yeah, so the first one was actually exhibited, well, the first one was a part of my undergraduate uh, review where I made all these vessels and made a glaze that has a, it's black microcrystalline which is almost, that it seemed like unattainable. I kind of put, that work was kind of put on the back burner until I came back to St. Louis. And there was a series of situations where I was um, disrespected and harassed by an authority figure. Can you say more about that? Uh, Basically, the, the person told me, would I like to meet their neighbor named Jim Crow? Wow. Was this in a personal or professional setting? Um, when I'm in the studio, I think of it as a personal space. And so, so it was both personal and professional. How did that happen? I, we, were talking about, um, we were talking about visiting artists to come to, um, to come to a place to visit and meet with students. And I was talking about all the various people that I would love to see come you know, if it's to St. Louis, if possible. 
And I think it was just a means of them showing their authority or showing their power or it just like was just blubber that was just coming out of their mouth and they they knew exactly what they were doing, but I, I don't know like why. And so how did you interpret those words and their oh, meaning? Oh, just blanket disrespect. Just blanket disrespect. Just well, just complete um complete uh disregard for the the like the studio being a personal space, the fact of like what it means to work and be present in the moment and like we live in 2018, not in this is in 1967. So what did you say? I just kind of remo- I just removed myself from uh, the environment. How did that, or did it get folded into your work as oh, you you'll proceeded see. forward? Yeah, you'll see. You'll. I mean, I'll explain it. So I started to make them all these all these objects, and I would I mass like one time seventy pieces on the table, and I was like, well, I'm gonna glaze them black. And I thought back to that work that I made in undergrad in Kansas City, but how about I present it in a very different way? And I was in graduate school at the time, so I took every um, way to redesign uh, the sculptures. Thinking about the undocumented series, every time I, the first exhibition that I was a part of here in St. Louis was Pentimento at Intersect Art Center before it was remodeled. Um, and that piece is called 49ers Dead Soldiers. And it was an octagonal table found at the seminary building. And then I put all the vessels from edge to edge, corner to corner. The next work from there was Concerned Student 1950 or the Johnson Family Reunion, which is a 50-foot square structure made out of found wood, atopped with plywood, and then the vessels stood um, edge to edge, corner to corner. And that was the first structure that was five, close to five feet. And, and then after, they just have now sustained a a height of five feet. It was about my eye level. So I just thought if the objects are at this level, there's no way to miss them or disregard them in space. And so simultaneously of working through that, I started to think about titles and how I deal with uh, communicating, Mm -hmm. uh, not just with the objects or the work, but uh, also the narrative that's behind the objects. So Concerned Student 1950 or the Johnson Family Reunion juxtaposes the students um, protesting the administrative uh, pursuits and demands at University of Missouri-Columbia and also um, and in relation to that kind of collective protest of black people in Columbia, Missouri from all over the country. The Johnson Family Reunion, we can think of that as a, as a stereotypical image or idea of black gathering, but then it can also be uh, specific families with names giving, given to them or inherited to them by a, historic, um, a historical precedent of enslavement. So the piece is talking about both the protests and also sort of the, the idea of the traditional reunions. Yes. How, what thread ties those two things together? The fact that the objects are non-representational. I'm not, I'm not using bodies, but I'm using objects that signify a certain kind of amassment that then relate to those kinds of amassments in the narratives. Okay, okay. So as the students in Columbia gathered, that is a reference that someone can see in these objects. So you are being exhibited and getting recognition 
in several areas of the country. Yeah, I'm by coastal right now. Yeah, what does that feel like? How are you handling that? I feel amazing. It feels great. I feel like I'm achieving things that I never thought that I would achieve. And I just keep working, and I want to keep making some of the narratives that I have um, full and ring true and come to life and it's exciting and it's all of what I've ever been working for. When I was young I had two pair leads besides that the pinstripes and the gray uh-huh. the one I wore on Mondays and Wednesdays. Uh-huh. But I read this article this morning called The Psychological Link Between Trauma and Work Addiction. I just shared that on my Facebook page yeah. this morning. The Success Addict Needs Constant Validation by Drake Bear, senior writer at Thrive Global covering the brain and social sciences. Mm-hmm. And so I, I, I've been through some things in my life, and it's hard to become accustomed and kind of accept all of these things that are happening. But I, I just keep going. And I think through um, working and loving and making friends and making new friends and developing what it means for me to be a person and how I want to be a person, it'll make it like more easier to receive and more clear to understand so this article about trauma and the resulting work addiction, you relate to that in some way, it sounds like. I do. Tell me about that. I mean, I was born to a father who was a seaman. or um, Yeah, my father was in the Navy. And then my mother met my father from my aunt, um, who was married to a seaman. And uh, then I was born, and my parents got married. And Somewhere along the lines, they got divorced, and I grew up in Norfolk, Nebraska with my all-white family, you know, in Norfolk, Nebraska, in a very small town. With your all-white family in, in, yeah. in very white Norfolk, Nebraska, yeah. I'm guessing. Yeah. yeah. My mom. So your mom is? White. White. Yeah. Okay. And. Uh, what was that like? I, you know, it's, it's so long ago, I don't remember so much about it. Sure. But my grandparents, I knew my grandparents, my mom's parents, and I knew some of my great-grandmothers. I don't know if I ever met any of my great-grandfathers. I don't know if they're alive. Um, and so that was interesting. I have six little brothers and sisters. I have three on my mom's side, three on my dad's side. And my mom had me and my little brother and two sisters consecutively, one after the other. And then soon after that, I, soon after my youngest sister was born, I moved to live with my father. Okay. What age would you have been at that point? I think seven or eight. And that was a different existence, I take it. I never I never knew who my father was. And so I was leaving the only home that I knew. How did that come about? It's complicated life stuff. I mean, I don't even remember, really. I just remember sitting one day outside this big building, looking at all the kids that I went to school with in Nebraska play in the playground at school, but I'm sitting on the other side of the fence. And next thing you know, I'm in the car driving away, never to return to Norfolk, Nebraska. And so in my exhibition at the Nerman Museum of Contemporary Art, I, uh, made, a pre- I made a sculpture called um, Downtown, Nor- Downtown Norfolk, Nebraska, 1998, as a kind of memorial to that, that day or that time that I left um, that, that, that place in my life. I moved to St. Louis, and then the last time I saw my mom was when I was 11. And then when I went to school in Kansas City, my mom died my freshman year of college. Oh, my goodness. I'm so, so that, sorry. 
Yeah, so that that's kind of how I relate to the tra- to the to the trauma in some ways to the trauma in the article and maybe in some ways that's why I work and I engage in the way that I do. You're um, wearing a necklace. Yeah, it's an, this necklace is actually um who is on that? It's me and my mom when I was a uh, I think I was younger than 1 years old. I don't think I was walking. But yeah. Don't you know Talking about a revolution sounds whisper. Don't you know how talking about a revolution sounds like a whisper? I've been listening to Tracy Chapman by Tracy Chapman from 1988. Yeah. Her debut album. Um, I remember getting um, Tracy Chapman telling stories when I was younger. And I know almost all the lyrics to that album. And when I heard um, Tracy Chapman by Tracy Chapman, it just, when I came back from Hungary, I was in just such a low place. Not a bad place, but I was low emotionally. And listening to Tracy just really helped me. And then I just started thinking about my mom a lot more. And then I wasn't working so much in the studio. even though I've constantly been able to have exhibitions, it's because I've made such amount of work that then I can share in so many places simultaneously to where I don't necessarily need to be producing at such a large amount. But I do now need to get started working in the studio for things that are coming up. But So I started wearing this necklace because of kind of that two-and-a-half-month period um, later that last year. After Hungary. Yeah, I came back in November. Okay. So I'm curious what it was like to have grown up in a white family, in a white community, and thrust into a different life in what I I assume may have been more of a a black community. Well, I moved, yeah, I'm I'm multiracial. But, yeah, it was was very interesting moving to St. Louis. Um, It was just a big transition. And when I think about evolving, we're all doing this, but how do I see it for myself? I mean, I think I just learned about who I was. It's just like all these different ecosystems that have their own, like going to a, going to St. Mark's of Scotland, all white nun teachers, so, like some mixed um, demographic students to going to an all-black school, St. Louis Public Schools. But it was interesting. And then going to Mason where it's like a mixed staff and administration and then Student body is also diverse, and it seemed like the students who went to Mason had a little different. They had, like, accessibility to certain things, like going to the YMCA and stuff like that. And then from Mason, I went to St. Louis Charter School on Sublet and Filer, and then that's, like, right next to the YMCA, and that had a certain level of uh, diversity, but also strenuous on, like, a young person. So what was the sort of the progression of your identity during all these different schools and oh, different makeups. I felt like makeups. I was bouncing around like a pinball machine. Like I felt like I was a pinball. So I understand that you may have said somewhere you belong at the top. Mm-hmm. Tell me what that means and how that plays out as you progress as an artist and get better known as an artist. I feel like in some ways you have to speak your reality that you desire into existence. 
but you also have to reflect on the reality in which the place in which you come from relates to who you are now and then how you are now relates to who you want to be in the future. So then you create certain situations or you involve yourself with things in a certain way that then guide you not only in your work or as a professional, um, but also as a human being that then uh, you're reflective to see what you have to do to get to where you want to go. And so for me to be at a place where I'm most like I'm most successful, I'm most comfortable, that's a place where I, I'm ha I have to invent that place. And I think people who are the most inventive, they they are at the top. I mean, they may not be making millions. You don't I don't think you have to be making millions to be at the top. But what you're saying is respected and regarded is quite important. That's kind of that's what the top means to me. And I feel like I'm actually getting there. That was Khalil Irving talking about his recent success in showing his art around the country. Beginning March 17th, you can see an exhibition of his work called Black Death at a granite city space called Standard. This is Cut and Paste, St. Louis Public Radio's arts and culture podcast. It's produced with help from my editor, David Casares. The music you heard is from local musician Eric Hall, as well as some selections from The Whispers, Notorious B.I.G., Outkast, and Tracy Chapman, artists that Irving enjoys listening to while he works. You can find Cut and Paste at stlpublicradio.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Cut and Paste is sponsored by Gemma, architects, planners, and designers. If you have a smart speaker, you have access to the entire world of NPR and St. Louis Public Radio. All the latest news and all the captivating stories. Activate our voices with yours by telling your smart speaker to play St. Louis Public Radio.